y'all. We are glad to be back for a sensational second season of Behind the Archives. Last season, we explored what happens in a special collections archive by talking with the people who work behind the scenes. This season, we will delve into the amazing stories behind the letters, photographs, notebooks, and even beard hair (laughs) that span centuries and continents. We start this episode with the stories of two curiosities in our collections. Both have a connection to European monarchies and Shakespeare. One is a lock of facial hair that can one day solve a mystery in history. The other, the rarest of books, one of only 10 in existence and the only copy in North America. I'm your host, Lily Tarot, the Community Outreach Archivist at Emory University Libraries, Stuart A. Rose, the Manuscript, Archives, and Rare Book Library, and you are listening to Rose Library Presents Behind the Archives. Everyone, I'd like to reintroduce you to Sarah Quigley. You probably remember her from episode two of season one. But I'll let Sarah do the reintroduction. Thanks, Lolita. Thank you for having me back. Oh, thank you for coming back. (laughs) I supervise the processing archivists and am responsible for the planning and implementation of our processing program here. And what that means is, what processing means, um, is the workflows and the techniques that we use to organize the collections that we have, um, to put them in order, to provide description of those collections so that researchers can find the documents and the information that they need for their projects. In archival shorthand, that's called processing. Um, So I supervise the archivists who do that. I do that a little bit still myself. So now brings me to my next statement and question. Um... So we're doing a little thing, things a little bit different, delving more into the archives. So can you tell us why you and a barber have something in common? It, <laughs> it involves a particular item that we have in the collection. Archivists deal with a surprising amount of hair in our collections um, because at the end of the day, archives are weird and kind of gross. <laughs> that doesn't mean they're not also wonderful. Lots of things in life that are wonderful are also disgusting. Archives are no different. So it's not uncommon to find locks of hair throughout archival collections. Um, It was a lot more common in days past that locks of hair would be part of scrapbooks and kind of sentimental keepsakes um, for parents and children, for sweethearts, sweethearts. We don't do that so much anymore, uh, thankfully, in my opinion. Um, But because it used to be so common, we actually have a lot of um, that kind of stuff floating around in different collections. That's not quite the context of this item. Um, I think you would maybe describe this item as a relic of the British monarchy. Mm. And it is a lock of hair purported to be from the beard of King Edward IV who was um, king of England for about 20 years in the middle of the 1400s. There was a bit of a pause in his reign because it was a time of um, ongoing civil war in that country. Um, But he was on the throne from like 1461 to 1483, something in there, by... 
fascinating happenstance, a lock of his beard hair now resides in Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. So, like, how does one process hair? <laughs> uh, luckily, this one's framed, so... <laughs> And it's framed. Um, and it's obviously. framed. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So I didn't have to, you know, I didn't have to find special housing for it or you know, brush it or anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was given to us in 1928 by an English man. Norwich, England, August 28th, 1928. Dear Dr. Dewey, through your kind offices, I'm sending, on the eve of your departure for your homeland, what is thought to be an interesting historical relic as a gift to the Emory University Museum. It is claimed to be a piece of the beard of King Edward IV of England. I give it as a token of regard and remembrance for you and the College Glee Club. During your recent visit to the country, where you not only charmed us with your most perfect music, but by the kind and graciousness of your own personalities. The relic was given to me by my intimate and dear friend, the late Sir Frederick de la Pole, whose ancestor, John de la Pole, Duke of Suffolk, married Elizabeth, a sister of Edward IV and Richard III, aunt of Elizabeth of York, queen of Henry VII. This communication is practical proof of its authenticity, so far as can be judged. Believe me, yours very sincerely, Ernest S. Howlett. So as a token of his appreciation, this fellow sent the lock of hair to be given to Emory's museum. It has ended up in special collections um, as opposed to the museum. A friend of his gave it to him, and his friend was the descendant of Edward IV's brother-in-law. So the ancestor had married Edward IV's sister, and it, the lock of hair came down through the generations. Uh, what an inheritance. <laughs> I mean, I would have just wanted a castle or, you know. Right? Something. I'm saying. <laughs> Where's one of those tiaras? <laughs> I mean, right? Give me the jewelry. Give me the, give me the bling, not the beard. Right. <laughs> and so, there I think we found our uh, marketing tagline for this entire season. Well done. <laughs> So you get this item, it comes here. Now, what happens next? Like, how, like, is there a process in place to, you know, do a DNA of it? Do we take it to Maury Povich? Like, what happens with that? (laughs) You know, do we call Maury, like, who do we call? Not Ghostbusters, because we're not being haunted by Edward IV that we know of. But we have these, this item, like, how do we... Um, or is it just an amazing story to have in the, in the archives? It had become kind of lost over time. It had ended up in a collection um, that we lovingly referred to as miscellaneous miscellany. If there's <laughs> anything more miscellaneous than some random beard hair, I can't tell you what it is. I mean, exactly, yeah. <laughs> and I did a project um, in 2017 and 2018 to uh, read organize that collection, essentially to take the materials that were within it and move them to more appropriate collections. 
um, the miscellaneous collections had gotten um, had become hidden over the years. There was not a finding aid for them online. There were some really interesting things in in that collection, but nobody knew that they were here. And so the beard ended up in um, our English documents collection. <laughs> of course, yeah. a beard can be a document. Um, I I feel like I learned that in library school. <laughs> And within about a year of redescribing that item and putting it in a more accessible collection, we got an email from a researcher with the um, American branch of the Richard III Society. Richard III was Edward IV's brother. And now this is where I get lost. So English history scholars, (laughs) please correct me if I mess something up. So Richard III was Edward IV's brother. And when Edward IV died, his sons were minors. And though his older son technically succeeded him, Richard III locked both of the boys up in the Tower of London and is suspected of having them murdered. They are more well-known as the princes in the Tower. Oh, yeah, Yeah, folks will be familiar with that story. So their remains have never been found, um, and the Richard III Society was the led an excavation in England in 2012 that uncovered the remains of Richard III um, under a, a parking lot. If if you m- you might remember that, right? My my kingdom for a horse. That kind of famous <laughs> line. That guy. He was in a parking lot. In a parking this lot. Is like the Sopranos of the English. It's <laughs> it's dramatic. Royalty. Yeah. Wow. So they were able to confirm that it was Richard III's remains via DNA testing and are searching for the remains of the princes in the tower. And so when they saw that we had this beard hair, they asked us if we would be willing to let them test the hair for DNA um, to authenticate the hair as Edward IV's number one, but um, more importantly, so that they would have it should they ever find remains that they wanted to test to see if they were the remains of the princes. We talked to them about it for um, about two years. We were into it. I was mm-hmm. so excited about this. Oh, my gosh, the, yes. The, it is the quintessential kind of odd story that more than anything else is about how central and relevant archives are. So this weird lock of hair that had been lost for decades in the end, could end up helping solve a centuries-old murder. Like, how random is that? I mean, and that's amazing. such a cool thing. Like, it's like archive CSI. Yeah. Like, it's, you know, it's very cool that that connection, because if if it is his hair and they can, and they can check that and confirm that, that would be something that would solve, like, an age-old mystery, because can you imagine the implications that would have and how that would rewrite history? Yeah, it would be... Unbelievable. Unfortunately, COVID happened, uh, which is, I think, something we'll be saying forever. Um, (laughs) The lab that they worked with was no longer able to do the testing that they needed to have done. They looked into a couple of other labs, um, but for their budget and um, the specific kind of DNA they needed to be able to retrieve at this 
time, it isn't going to be possible to move forward with that DNA testing. Mm. So I hope that someday they will uncover some remains that they feel like are likely um, to be the princes, and we'll hear from them again. Um, Because once they have something to compare it to, it will be more feasible for them to conduct that testing. Um, I was was really pulling for it. I really wanted to... um, Oh somehow gosh. be part of this because it, right? it was just so exciting. I mean, the amazing part is like this is something that was and it's a lot of times we and we talked about this on season one, too, about things that are hidden. I think people don't realize like how often this happened. It's not because it's um, like we just have things and we just randomly put them there, but we get these random things. Right. And then it's like, well, where do they go? Or. Um, there's a change of something and we don't know, but then there's some really cool things. So how, when you're putting items from one collection into another, which it makes more sense, like how do you go about that process? Um, We have a lot of what we call artificial collections here at Rose. And an artificial collection is um, a collection that is essentially created by the institution and the items within the collection are not related. They don't share a creator. They don't come from the same donor necessarily. Um, The only relation they have is some sort of topical relationship or a a subject matter relationship. And that enables us to acquire individual items that are really important um, without having to have them come in via an individual's papers or... Um, an organization's records. Because most of these are thematic, we have um, a collection that documents African-American culture and history. We have one for the history of Atlanta. We have one for the history of Georgia more broadly. Um, We have a couple of literature ones. So depending on what the item is about, um, that is how we decide where it goes. And a, a beard isn't necessarily about much. <laughs> <laughs> but that, like you said earlier, that is what's so fascinating about it. This one curiosity that we have in the archive could um, unlock a big mystery or create another mystery. Like, you know, it could be something that is is like, oh, it may be this person's hair or it could be somebody else we have not heard of. And like forensic science is involved, like archives is more than just like looking at an item or like it's so like so many other factors like come into play. And it's like really cool to work in a place that, you know, could could, you know, potentially like, you know, create. And I just love how we're like Edward the third and fourth. And I'm just thinking, ooh, another sequel. Um, (laughs) It's amazing. It's like, can you imagine like we're going to be, you know, Chris Evans, come, please. Yeah, I mean, please. Uh, Where is Shakespeare when we need? Them, right? We need we need a dramatic play. We need Mr. Evans to be the star. Where is Hollywood? We are writing the scripts for everyone. Oh my gosh. Someone <laughs> is in this town right now who wants to hear this pitch. Exactly. We, we I'm just telling need to find you, them. Goldmine, beard hair <laughs> in the archives. It's the next like Angels and Demons or the next Marvel big thing. I can feel it. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for talking to us about this and and showing how we're connected to so many other different jobs in our ways. (laughs) Like, we always uh, joke about this, but other duties as a sign, um, figuring out where beard hair goes. So. (laughs) 
helping figure out how many hairs we can spare so the DNA <laughs> testing can be done. <laughs> An honest tale speaks best being plainly told. Shakespeare's Richard III, Act 4, Scene 4. Beth Shoemaker explores this idea next with tales of Danish history and folklore, including one you may know as Amleth or Hamlet. Welcome back, Beth. Uh, Can you tell us who you are again? Well, hi. Thanks um, for having me back. So I'm Beth Schumacher. I'm the rubric librarian at Rose Library at Emory. As a rubric librarian, I do lots of things. Um, I acquire uh, materials for the collection, um, specifically rare books. Um, I teach. I catalog materials. I do a lot of work with um, our collections and trying to do outreach and um get more people interested in the amazing things that we have in our collection. So what did you bring uh, today to talk about? So I brought um, the Rose Library copy of a book called The Danish Chronicle or The Geste Danorum is the the um, general title that's used for it. It's sort of a revised version, but the original um, book was written by a man named Saxo Grammaticus who lived in the 12th century. Oh, this 12th century book that we have just just happened to have. Well, the book slightly later. That's one of the interesting things about this book, actually. I think it's 12 books, and it's all about um, essentially the Danish kings um, and that kind of part of history of the Danes. It has some fun curiosities. So why do we have a history of the Danes at Rose Library? Well, (laughs) this particular book has um, a really interesting history. So it was printed... Originally, people thought around 1510, and then that got sort of backed up because of who they think commissioned this printing of the work, and he probably couldn't have afforded it after 1502 because of a lawsuit. The copy that we have, um, in addition to some other rarities, has some manuscripts uh, writing in the front, which is a short history of the early owners of the book. And uh, one of the, the earliest, which is an unknown Swede, it's not not signed with a name, talks about having found this book um, after a battle that happened sort of in current North Germany in 1500. So it's now thought that it was probably printed in 1495. Now you think 1495, 1510, but those 15 years really like are a significant um, sort of change in how printing happened and where printing happened and um, where certain people were set up to print. It's interesting that it's not in, so Danish and Low German were not um, exclusive languages at that point. So the book's actually printed in Low German as opposed to in Danish. So there's a whole sort of interesting history there with the book. So the person that was thought to have owned it, you said they probably couldn't afford it. Um, Can you talk a little bit more about that? The person who commissioned the printing. So um, it was printed by a man named Matthias Brandeis, who was a was a German who was working in Lübeck, which is northern Germany, but in those borders in the um, beginning of the 16th century were different than they are today. And he didn't he didn't print a date in the book. That's why there's this this sort of um, discrepancy between when people thought it was printed. Um, and he printed it on commission from uh, a nobleman 
who was known to commission books. But in 1502, he was the defendant in a lawsuit, which he lost, and he had to sell some property in order to pay off the plaintiff in this lawsuit. So that's sort of the cutoff for him. Um, he didn't commission any books after that, and it's thought that his fortunes were diminished enough that he didn't feel like that was something he could do um, after that lawsuit was settled in 1502. This book, uh, in addition to sort of the interesting manuscript material that's at the beginning uh, and these these sort of discussions by previous owners about why they had it and why it was important to them, one of the biggest reasons that we got it is because um, one of the stories in it is about the king of Denmark and his son Amleth, who we might know later on via Shakespeare as Hamlet. Um, it's sort of interesting because Hamlet uh, marries. Ophelia does not die in this version. Sorry if that's a spoiler on Hamlet for anybody. Wait a minute. Wait um, a minute. I just read the cliff notes. Wait a minute. <laughs> she dies? Oh. Yeah, she does. She does. But it, not not in this original <laughs> version. Um, and this is, I mean, this text was not uncommon. I mean, this printing's a little uncommon, but it was around. And it's almost certain that Shakespeare knew this version of this legend of Amleth when he wrote his Hamlet later, a little bit later on. Um, there are modern translations of this, too. I mean, you can read um, the Gisidanorum in English in translation. You can buy it from, you know, Barnes & Noble or Amazon or wherever wherever you get your books. It's not, it's not uncommon. Um, it's around if you really want to read this version of Hamlet and you're interested in the Danish kings. So when Saxo Grammaticus wrote this, he was it was very Romanized. It was very sort of romantic and through the eyes of like classical history. It went through some some revisions with later sort of editors who are unnamed um, to sort of purge that sort of romantic voice a little bit and some of the filigree that um, that Saxo Grammaticus put in it. But those those editors are unnamed, so this is a slightly different version than. Um, what Saxo Grammaticus originally wrote around the turn of the 12th century. At this time, this book is created by hand? So it would have been printed by hand. So mm -hmm. um, each page would have been set with each individual letter as a separate piece um, and put all together, and then it gets locked up, and then um, they ink it with these big beaters. So like big, you know, they're kind of big like leather-covered, um, hand beaters that, ship, that get ink all over it and they put the paper on it and they run a weight over it and boom, there's a page and they print how many ever they're going to. It's not known how many copies of this were originally printed. Uh, there are about 10 remaining that are known in the world. Um, our copy is the only one in North America. So the other copies are all in Europe, um, mostly in Copenhagen, as you would maybe expect. Um, the Netherlands... Um, and North Germany. Interestingly enough, this came through um, a Danish book vendor um, with whom we do business occasionally. Um, we have we have purchased other things from them. And it's the first one, the last known copy that came up for sale was at an auction in 1803. Wow. So uh, this was the first copy that's been sold. Um, I mean, we've had this for four or five years, but um, so it had been 200 years since um, any copies had come on the market. So there's a kind of history of who owned it and what they thought. That yeah, there's there's really clear. So in in the rare book world, we call this provenance, and in the art world as well. Um, so knowing where things came from, who had them before you had them, and so we can trace the first um, four owners 
actually through this manuscript. So it was in, in only in four sets of hands between about 1500 and the late 19th century. Then it was um, in private hands after that and then um, came on the market. And it sounds like it's such a great acquisition because we have the story, like you said, we have that connection with Shakespeare and, and the story of of Hamlet. What value does it add to having it here at Rose? There's a lot of reasons this is really interesting and that we pursued this. So um, first of all, it, it provides sort of a background. So um, of course, Ham, many stories that that Shakespeare wrote didn't completely come out of the ether of his own mind. Um, he used a lot of folk tales on a lot of um, previous material and and sort of bent it to his will and his needs for the theater. So in addition to just sort of the interesting provenance, which I think is really ripe for some research, um, I think it's, it's really important to have, in this case, the precursor to an extremely well-known story. The conflicted son and the yeah. remarried mother to the father who probably killed, you know, the, that whole sort of tragic circle is definitely seen in, in other spinoffs and other kinds of tales. And, um, and so I think it's really interesting to be able to see where this legend originated with Danish folklore or Danish history, depending on how you read this material. Of course, we're talking about history that's long enough ago that it's some of both, I think. Um, and uh, to to understand what the roots of something like Hamlet, which is one of Shakespeare's best known works, it makes sense because Shakespeare was also known for writing histories, right? Um, mm -hmm. So uh, I, I think he found his sources in lots of places and was really interested in um, in using sources that existed. Now, often people sort of want it to come out of their own creativity, and of course, it did um, for Shakespeare. But um, but he wasn't starting from scratch, as it were. And this is excellent evidence that he was not starting from scratch. And I think that's that's the strength of a lot of our rare book collections, our early um, our early printings of um, rare books here at Rose, is that you can sort of project instead of just projecting things forward, right? So Shakespeare wrote Hamlet, and then what came after? But you can also project backwards, and I think we can do that um, with a number of other texts that we have that are early. Um, Cinderella is one, so we have a a book that is not the one I'm talking about today, but um, <laughs> that has the first printed version of the Cinderella legend, which actually was a German sermon. And uh, she lived in a nunnery and they were mean to her. <laughs> but um, uh, so so looking at um, sort of roots of things and, and building out our rare book collection to be able to look backwards from what we see as monuments um, as well as forwards is uh, an interest of mine and the strength of our collection in general, um, even before I, I came to Emory. All right. Well, thank you again, Beth, for this wonderful interview. Any other tidbits? Come come see the Gesta Danorum. Come see the first version of um, Cinderella. Um, come have a look at some of the amazing rare books that we have. Behind the Archives is produced by Lolita Rowe, Nick Twimlow, and Jacob Chisenhall, who is also our editor. Music created by Sister Sai. We are grateful for the continued support provided by our colleagues at the Rose Library, including our director, Jennifer Gunter King. Special thanks to Sarah Quigley, Beth Shoemaker, and the Emory Center for Digital Scholarship. 
For more information about Rose Library and our other podcast series, Community Conversations and Atlanta Intersections, please visit us at rose.library.emory.edu. Follow us on Rose Library's Instagram and other social media, and please share with your friends. You can find Behind the Archives on all your favorite podcast feeds. Before we go, let me tell you about what's in store for season two of not only this series, but Community Conversations and Atlanta Intersections. We'll be featuring moon landings, punk rock, LGBTQ life in Atlanta, baseball, and a trip down the yellow brick road. 